Welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalbert. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're going to be talking about a few of our favourite things from the 2010s. It's almost like we've reached the end of a decade. Yeah, we were a little slow off the mark here. We probably should have done this a few weeks ago, but... Well, well as always, we're a bit behind the curve. Yeah. But before we get on to that, what's been going on and what's coming up? Well, I guess one of the things that's coming up for all of us soon is Concrete Cow 20, which will be coming on the 14th of March. Indeed, that's the one-day convention taking place in Walton, Milton Keynes. Five pounds on the door and play lots of games. Yep, we'll all be there. So, yeah, come along, say hi, play games, do fun stuff. Now, Scott, I hear you've been appearing again on a different podcast. Yes, I am seeing other podcasts. (sighs) I feel betrayed in two times. Yes, once again, I'm running stuff for How We Roll. Well, I'm still running the Two-Headed Serpent for them, and I'm actually also doing some stuff for their Patreon backers as well that's exclusive there. But the other thing that's coming out is Masks of Nyarlathotep, or at least not the whole campaign. We're just doing the Peru chapter, the intro chapter, that I wrote for the new campaign. So we've been running through that with a few guest stars, including Seth Skorkowski, Keeper Murph uh, from the Miskatonic University podcast, Veronica from Cthulhu and Friends, and Owen and Joe from How We Roll. And it has been absolute fucking chaos so far, in a good way. I think it should be entertaining, but dear God. (laughs) I look forward to listening to that one. It's an all-star cast. Yeah, it's been a really good bunch of players. And yeah, they... They have done things. Boy, have they done things. (laughs) He says with a thousand-yard stare that doesn't quite come out in the audio. (laughs) So, on to our main topic now. The best of the 2010s. Or, I think Paul's title is actually a bit better. A few of my favourite things. Or things that didn't quite so much suck in the last ten years. (laughs) Because there was an awful lot that sucked in the last ten years. There really was. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) Each of us will be having a pick of our favourite book, film and game from the last ten years. And talking about why it appeals to us so much. Or, in my case, in certain instances, the only thing in the last ten years in that category. (laughs) That's just the lonely old man shaking his fist (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I think what we're going to end up doing is probably referencing more than one thing, but I think we've got to identify the one thing that I'm kind of picturing it a bit like Desert Island Discs, that at the end you've got one disc that you can actually keep when all the other nine get washed away. So I want to sort of see what that one thing is from each of us, that one book, that one film, whatever, even if you do mention others. Okay, so who wants to start? Well, volunteered, there you go. Okay, well, let's start with books then. It's probably no surprise to anyone who's listened to earlier episodes of the podcast or read The Blasphemous Tome that my favourite book of the last 10 years is actually North American Lake Monsters by Nathan Ballingrud. But we have talked about that in the Wild Acre episode. I did write a piece about it for the tome. So the book I've chosen is Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones. This is quite a difficult book to sum up neatly. It's sort of a horror novel. I, I don't know. I mean, you might be able to describe it as urban fantasy, but it doesn't really have that urban fantasy vibe to it. It's got a lot of black comedy in it. It's a sort of coming-of-age story. It's a lot of different things. 
And it's about a family of werewolves who live this nomadic existence across the American South. They are quite impoverished and they struggle to fit into human society. Physically, they can pass for humans. They look human, except for when they shift. But at the same time, they have this feral nature to them that makes it difficult for them to live in polite society. Every now and then, they'll do something or something that will happen that will just cause everything to go to shit and they'll have to pack up and move somewhere else. And... Yeah, it's told from the point of view, or at least largely told from the point of view, of this unnamed narrator who starts off as a child and he's an adolescent by the end of it. And it's him sort of piecing together his family history and hearing stories from his uncle and aunt who are raising him. His parents are dead, or at least out of the picture. And his grandfather, who tells all these old tales, these tall tales. Yeah, some of them are darkly humorous. And, you know, as the book goes on, you start to learn the the darker truths behind some of them. But apart from the whole nomadic aspect of it, one of the things I really like about this is the way that it goes into different aspects of werewolf legends and portrays this idea that being a werewolf under this set of circumstances is both quite exciting in terms of you have this animalistic side you can tap into and there's the joy of the hunt and all that. But fundamentally, it's a bit shit that there are all sorts of problems. Uh, Jones goes into a lot of the mechanics of actually being a werewolf. For example, just little things like the medical complications that can come up if you shift into a wolf, get a tick, and then shift back and pull that tick inside your body and you've suddenly got it there. And there's there's a lot of sort of weird body horror like this. The explanation about why werewolves never wear pantyhose because if you don't have time to take your clothes off before you shift, the mesh on there can then hook into the skin and do really really horrible things and you know when you turn back it can just be incorporated into your skin and just basically fuck you up for life Hmm. you know what do they feed on a lot of the time they live a human existence they don't have to shift the whole time it's very much a matter of choice but when they are werewolves i mean most of the time they hunt animals the uncle who's raising our narrator uncle darren every now and then he does sort of kill someone and eat them so Hmm. in one memorable part they come across another pack of werewolves who have learned to subsist by is very much frowned upon but they basically feed on the dead what they've learned is that the best thing to do is stalk out jewish cemeteries because the bodies are buried within 24 hours and they're not embalmed so they're good eating (laughs) so there's just all these odd little touches like this like I said, I mean, it's quite a funny book, but there is this constant thread going through it of the narrator trying to work out who he is, his relationship with his absent parents, whether or not he actually fits into the society that he's being raised into, because there's this idea that not everyone who is born to a werewolf bloodline is actually going to change, is actually going to become a werewolf. Oh. You know, some of them may just end up being human. And so it's him sort of waiting for adolescence to find out what his fate is going to be and and whether or not he is going to be part of the family. Oh. Yeah, it is just a strange, funny, moving and deeply fucked up book. Well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, admittedly, this is something that carries not even through game for me. I always find werewolves a bit of a turn-off. I've never sit down and enjoyed a werewolf film. I've never got on with them in gaming. Yeah, yeah and you some... don't like the werewolf RPG either. The Hell no. White, the white wolf version. Yeah, either of them. There's something about the creature in general that just really instantly kills my imagination. 
I must admit, they're not my favourite creatures, not my favourite monsters from mythology. But on the other hand, I mean, obviously, you know, I really liked Wild Acre, which we talked about before, really like this. If werewolves are handled imaginatively, I think they can be really quite potent. It's just, it's not very interesting if they are just monsters. Yeah, precisely. I think it's probably why I find them quite bland and quite uninteresting. But, I mean, there have been uh, so many good stories and films that have used them intelligently and imaginatively like uh, The Wolf and The Howling uh, I remember seeing The Howling as a kid but I don't remember enjoying it American Werewolf in London not seen it not seen oh. it wow oh, wow. oh trust me there are lots of big gaps in my film well, me too <laughs> right. so what have you got Matt well thinking of books I had to have a long look at my shelf and think, what the fuck have I read in the last 10 years? Yeah. Because <laughs> since I got out of school and got out of university, I'm a chronically slow reader at the best of times. And what library of books I've got are all fairly old books. What I have that's new, I just haven't read. It did take me a hell of a long time to think, what books have I read? Tiff's been going to pole arts in class for the last few months. So I've been reading lots of James Herbert. No, he died more than 10 years ago, so that counts him out of the category. I read Dennis Wheatley's uh, Devil Rides Out. That's definitely not within yeah. the last 10 years. <laughs> and There is only one book that I've read that was written in the last 10 years. I won't dwell too much uh, on it because Scott's already done a fairly in-depth review of it already. And mentioning our good friend Nathan again, it's Nathan Ballingrid's Wounds. Yeah, Scott called it on the way over, thinking, yep, this is the only book I've read. <laughs> well, we haven't talked about that one very much, have we? We've talked about North American lake monsters, yeah. but not wounds. I did write a review of it on BlasphemousTomes.com, but we've not discussed it on the podcast. So if you want to say a little yeah. bit about it now, that'd be great. I'll do a quick overview of the stories in it. It's essentially a short story collection rather than rather than a novel, although a couple of the stories in there are quite long, um, almost enough to be novellas in their own right, I think, really, given, yeah. given the length. And there are connections between them as well. Hmm. Oh, yes, yeah, varying connections between the different stories in there. Um, it's got the subtitle, Six Stories from the Border of Hell. Yeah, they all have a shared theme. They're all in some way touching upon hell or something demonic. Well, the original title of the collection, before it was renamed to time with the film Wounds, was The Atlas of Hell. If you ever get Nathan to sign one of your books, did he sign your copy of this as well? No, I didn't well, have it with me. All right. You know, he crossed out the title Wounds on my book and wrote the Atlas of Hell in over it. <laughs> oh, okay. He did send a copy for Lucy. I'll have to check up. Yeah. yeah so the, the Atlas of Hell is the first story in the collection. Essentially, it revolves around a head in a box. It's, it's great. In the swamps outside New Orleans, a very... I kind of picture it more as a bit like Harry Damore from the Clive Barker yeah. uh, stories. A character that's going out that deals in the occult community. He's uh, kind of a sort of devious character, a bit of a ne'er-do-well. And um, also a bibliophile. Yes, oh, very much so. He owns, runs a bookstore, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. That he heads out to collect this thing, this atlas, from a, a shack in the woods. Or a shack in the swamp, rather. And, yeah, it's a severed head that's still talking in an iron box, and its words are, say, corrosive or uh, yeah, destroying. Warp, they, they warp reality. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a great little story, very Clive Barker-esque. My favourite in the collection is definitely The Moor. Oh, it's such a good setup that you have this strange void or mouth in the earth that's opened in this otherwise seemingly normal, average suburbia. But it's well, essentially it's, a gate it's not, to... It's not suburbia, is it? It's, it's a natural city. It's the centre of a city. I thought it was, I thought it was more I the thought. kind of residential outskirts of... But it's definitely oh. part of a city anyway. Yeah. But like a sinkhole? 
Yeah, it's, it's just this, this huge hole that's opened up, which is essentially this big mouth that goes straight to hell. Right. And there are various creatures that have started to come out and slowly turning the area around it into more of a hellish landscape. There's lots of body horror. That, again, very Clive Barker-esque. And this, essentially the story is that this old man who's been forced out of the area wants to go back inside and get his dog that's run away and presumably gone back home. And the building is right over the centre of where this hole is. And oh, it, it's sweet, it's sorrowful, it's melancholy, and it's downright fantastic. It's also deeply fucked up. The body horror in it is really horrific. Oh, yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, out of all the stories in the book, if you were looking for something that was gameable, using that corrupted area in the city, the area where the moor is, as a setting at an RPG, I, mean, I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Oh, yes. You could almost use it as a version for Hot War. You could almost interpret that as being the zone, mm. where there are your, in inverted commas, stalkers going into it, going to retrieve bits and pieces and looting it for all it's worth. And I'm tied, really, for my third on the list. I was going to go with The Visible Filth, the story that Wounds is based on, the film Wounds. But I think anything that has an angel possessing a giant squid takes the edge. <laughs> so I'll go with the last one in the collection, The Butcher's Table which is um, effectively pirates of the Caribbean sailing to hell, followed by angels that have a like for possessing things, including giant squid. Yeah, I definitely need to read that one. We heard Nathan read some of that in Necronomicon, which yeah. is marvellous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the depiction that he puts in there of the shores of hell at the end, I mm-hmm. thought was amazing. Oh, particularly just this huge piece of landscape that, no, it isn't a landscape or mounting, it's the body of an angel. Yes. Yeah, Descending into its open mouth to cut... Oh, I can't remember what they call them now. This huge screaming tongue that you molest oh, yes. to open a gate to hell. That They go and collect it from the vocal cords or the throat of the dead angel. How about you then, Paul? What's your choice? Okay, well, I mean, again, like Matt, I looked at my shelves and I'm picking up books thinking, I read that. Oh, 2007, 2005, 1997. Books don't seem as timely to me as films and TV. I think with films and TV... I kind of look for new things and they date more quickly because we're actually seeing the now. You know, even if it's a fantasy version that's made now on TV, it's got people of today and haircuts and fashion kind of shows through. Whereas with books, they seem more timeless somehow. Yeah, I realised for a long time that I'd pretty much given up reading, particularly contemporary horror, that most of the horror and and sword and sorcery and even science fiction stuff that I read was stuff from quite often the 1920s and 30s, and that I really wasn't reading much that was written now. And I actually, about 10 years ago, or maybe even less than that, started deliberately making making the effort to try to read more contemporary stuff because I realised I just didn't have a clue what was going on in the field. Yeah. Aside from Nathan's books that you know I've, I've read, Stephen Donaldson's got some new books out that I've read, kind of continuing the Thomas Covenant series, which have been great. But the one that I think is my favourite book that I've read that's been published in the last 10 years isn't a horror book. It's a biography by Philip Glass called Words Without Music. And it's just him recounting you know, he was born in 37 and kind of growing up in the kind of post-war America. And his dad ran a record shop and was like beating up shoplifters in his record store and <laughs> stuff like this. And then he goes off to Paris and he comes back and he's growing up in New York. So he really paints a great picture. If you want kind of early 60s New York and the 70s and so on, that whole era, particularly being in the kind of art scene, if you wanted to set games there, this would be a great resource for that. So he's going out in the evenings driving taxis which is i think 
fairly dangerous profession in some places around New York at the time. Yeah, well, and then, the 1970s were a really rough time in New York because the city went bankrupt then. Right. Uh, there was a widespread poverty. The crime rate went through the roof. I and mean, things have got a hell of a lot better since then. But the 70s were a terrible time for New York. So he's doing that. And then he comes home and he sits up all night writing music. And then he takes the kids to school. Then he goes to bed. <laughs> and then he wakes up, I don't know, say five, six o'clock in the evening or four or five, six o'clock in the evening, goes back out, drives the taxi. So it's a kind of a, a nocturnal lifestyle of, uh, but the dedication to keep on doing that and writing his music and so on. And also I just found him, I, I found through looking at some of the choices I've made for films as well, I'm quite interested in people who are quite driven to do things. I don't think I'm as driven as these people by a, a long shot. And their their kind of spontaneous creativity. So I went to see Akhenaten, his uh, opera based upon the Egyptian king last year in London. And when he originally had it performed, it was performed in Hamburg. And he talks about this. And he talks about he's written this massive opera. He goes to Hamburg and the opera house is being done up. So he has to perform it in the playhouse, which has got a much smaller orchestra pit. So he can't fit the whole orchestra in. He looks at it and he says, oh, well, we'll do it without violins then. So (laughs) from now on, the whole opera is without violins and violins are like the high notes. So the the whole piece takes on a much deeper kind of resonant tone to the whole thing. So it's that kind of flexibility and creativity and dedication to his work that just constantly shines through the book, as well as all the people that he rubs shoulders with. There's Andy Warhol, Lou Reed in America, you know, he's in the same sort of zone as them. And he was like private assistant for Richard Serra, the artist, Uh, just you know, all these things that, yeah, amaze me. And yeah, I guess Glass is unusual in that he doesn't really exist within sort of one musical community, that he is sort of a neoclassical composer, but he's worked with a lot of popular musicians and he's done a lot of film music. Yeah, Candyman. Yeah, yeah, yeah one of my favourites. Yeah, I think he's, um, unless I'm getting it mixed up completely, he did coin a Scotsy. Yep, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. yeah that's where I, I know him most from. Yes, and Einstein on the beach, which is probably my favourite of his. Okay, we've had a look at books. Let's try other types of books. Gaming books. So, games. What's been the best game in the last 10 years for you, Scott? It was interesting going through games for this, because I think I probably had the same experience that you two did, in that, I don't know, maybe it's because we've been working on so much Call of Cthulhu stuff, but I haven't played the same kind of range of games in the last decade that I did in, say, the decade before then, when I seemed to play just about every new game that was coming out. I really struggled with this. There were a few possible choices that came up, like I thought maybe, you know, Monster Hearts, but we've talked about that on the podcast. I thought maybe Apocalypse Bowl, but I decided it wasn't really one of my favourites. So the one I ended up going for, uh, which just squeaked in coming out in 2010, was Cthulhu Dark. What I really like about Cthulhu Dark, this is Graham Walmsley's Cthulhu game that he put out initially in this one-page version, or at least this pamphlet version that can be printed out on a single page. What I like about it is its simplicity. 
It is a very, very focused game that has a single resolution mechanic. It's got a mechanic that was initially called Sanity, but is now Insight in the new edition, which acts as a sort of almost pacing mechanism. You have this idea that you cannot actually fight the forces of the mythos. There is no combat system per se. The combat system boils down to if you fight a monster, you die. And so... You you have this one-page version of it, which encapsulates all that, which, you know, having run it a fair bit, is absolutely enough to do a, a certain type of Lovecrafting game. It's about investigation, it's about uncovering horrible secrets, it's about dealing with the consequences of them, and it just works beautifully. It is laser-focused, and it... I think does a better job of creating a sense of helplessness and hopelessness than most games I've encountered. Then in 2017, Graham did a Kickstarter for a new version of it that basically spanned it into a 200-page book, which sounds a bit odd for something that was a single page before. Some very big typeface. Yeah, yes. What he did was he didn't expand the mechanics very much. There are a few new options in there, but fundamentally it's the same game. But the new edition has additional settings it's got four settings in there it's got a victorian london one not a gaslight one this is 1851 it's dickensian london arkham in 1692 that's the same kind of time as the salem witch trials Mm -hmm. a fictional i think it's west african certainly african country sub-saharan african created by helen gold called jibo which is set in the present day and then there is a sort of cyberpunk one set in mumbai in 2037 Each one of these uses the idea that the investigators are not perhaps the normal investigators that you might see in Call of Cthulhu, in that they tend to be people from lower social strata, people who are outsiders in society. It's not the upper-class investigators that you might see in Cthulhu by Gaslight, for example. That They are people who are fundamentally working at a social disadvantage. Haberdashers galore. Yeah. I think that's that's a bit outdated, that stereotype of Gaslight, though. Most of the Gaslight games I've played have still been like that. All right, okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe your experience is different, but... That has been a thing, but I think, you know, that's... I think when we see the new edition of Cthulhu by Gaslight come out soon, that's going to address this. Yeah, I think it's a broader, you know, range of approach than that, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, I think, you know, traditionally, you know, that hasn't been the case. And so, yeah, he's got that. He's got instructions or advice for keepers on how to run the game. More importantly, how to structure an investigation and write a scenario. And it's all really quite good stuff. All of that is nice, but it's not necessarily what makes the game work for me. What makes it work for me is just that simple set of mechanics that does horror so well. What about you, Marin? I had, again, a real trouble trying to find something, identifying a a list of what was released in the last 10 years in terms of RPGs. And eventually I stumbled across a page on Wikipedia. And I sat there and thought, oh, this will be helpful. I can go through the list. Nope, played that. It was shit. Nope, haven't played that. (laughs) Nope, that's just a new edition of an older game, so I can't really put that in. And what the fuck is this? And just going down the list and going, nope, 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 no, 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 hell no wasn't very helpful at all until that's positive attitude (laughs) (laughs) if i was to think of games because i tried to think of something that was brand new in the 10-year period if it was going for a newer version of an older game even if it was one like a substantial difference then like easily that would be a tie for me between cthulhu 7th edition and cult divinity lost but i tried to think of something that was say new Mm. and this list just didn't help me. Uh, I sat there racking my brains thinking, there's not much in the 2019 period. 
So there must be some more games that came out in that year. Because I think there was only three entries on the list. And then I hit it. I thought, I've written about this in the tome. I played this at Contingency a couple of years back when it was still down at Sandy oh, Balls. I know what it is now. Yeah. Inconceivable! The uh-huh. Princess Bride RPG. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, it's a version of Fudge that I enjoyed because it hasn't got all the extra weight of shit that you've got on it like the Dresden Files RPG has. But it's just a nice, simple, core mechanic. It's set in a fun, light-hearted world. There's not really any horror in there. It's very much set within the confines of the film rather than the book. The book itself from, from Toy Vault was uh, filled a lot with pictures and stills from mm. the film. There's a few bits of their own custom artwork, but yeah, mostly from pictures from, from the film itself. It's a lovely, light-hearted game where you can romp around Gilda, save rescued sheep or cows like we did in the game we played that John Gathercole ran for us. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, it was just a nice change of pace with a nice simple set of mechanics and used a fudge dice came out on the table and I didn't instantly feel revolted by them. It, it was great. <laughs> it sounds more like it was some kind of therapy for you, Matt. <laughs> it certainly helped get over that aversion. But yeah, playing the game that John ran was enough to convince me to back the Kickstarter when it came out. Wait a minute. Did you need convincing? I didn't even know about it ah, at that point. Okay. And, and I thought, oh, great, it's fudge. Oh, it's going to be fate. It's, oh, it's goddamn awful. But no, it was just a nice breath of fresh air for All a right. system that I thought was awful. But yeah, I ended up going in quite a lot on that Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up going, as the name would go, the inconceivable edition faux leather bound gilt copy in a wooden presentation box with sets of its own dice lots of metal grandpa weight counters because you can throw those in much like Benny's to say no that isn't what happened in the story this is uh, kind of emulating the kid interrupting his grandfather telling the story and getting to change bits of the plot yeah he's got a little fun few quirks like that it's been some time since i've read the book but i remember the film as being actually fairly closely based on the book. There were a couple of scenes that didn't make it into the film, but on the whole, yeah, I don't think they're very different. I've been trying to track down a copy of the book, so I want at least a decent hardback of it for the shelf. They seem to be quite expensive. Eventually I'll find find one and put it on there and then get to read it, which again would be another book that's not within the last ten years that would be yes, added onto my sure. collection. How about you then, Paul? Okay, well again, I mean, looking at my shelves and looking at games, this list that Matt refer to on wikipedia is a great list and i found there was maybe like 10 or a dozen games on there that i had played but you know when i think about the games that i've really enjoyed a lot of them stem back to one game that you've already referenced scott and that's apocalypse world which Mm. came out in 2010 i went to indycon just after that came out and played that it was run over like two sessions and that was a great game i think it's a hard one to run I don't think it's mm. that well presented in the book. God, I don't no. even think the game itself, maybe it's a great game. I'm not sure. But some of the aspects of it, the kind of design aspects of it, have had such influence. And I think the 2000s, the noughties, whatever you want to call them, was, to me, a period of kind of indie games. Yeah, And the 2010s... When we look back, I think this is a period of Apocalypse World hacks. You know, looking at a list, I could find like over 100 Apocalypse World hacks. I think it was two things in the 2010s. It was, like you say, a lot of Apocalypse World hacks. And it was also a lot of more traditional games, perhaps, which had been informed by the indie games of the previous decade and had mutated and changed as a result. The two strands definitely merged as the decade went on. And also the return of D&D, Fifth Ed, can't yes. be, you know, that's, that's a really significant yeah, thing yeah, in this decade, that coming back so. as a, as a strength I hear um, it when happened. it's been you know it was kind of supplanted to some degree by 
Pathfinder and so on. But now it's kind of taken, you know, its place at the head of things again, I think. Closely followed by Call of Cthulhu, of course. But yeah. So Apocalypse World, I think it is the kind of progenitor of, of the decade. Some of the Apocalypse World hacks I've played, yeah, include Monster Hearts, which we have talked about on another show, and is about, to me, a kind of coming-of-age story, which, you know, I love coming-of-age films, and it, it sort of encapsulates that. Monster of the Week, Dungeon World, No Country for Old Kobolds, Urban Shadows, Blades in the Dark, Tremulous, Masks. There's a whole bunch of those. I think the hacks, some that I've played, I've thought were really good, an improvement on the original Apocalypse World as a game. And some, you know, kind of missed the mark for me. Yeah, I mean, out of interest, did you ever play Tremulous? Yeah. I don't know. I've only played it once. And I was really intrigued by the idea of a Call of Cthulhu-influenced Apocalypse World game or Apocalypse World hack. And I don't know, that one just fell flat for me. I think it tried to cleave too closely to Call of Cthulhu. Yeah. And that mesh didn't really work. I mean, you might as well play Call of Cthulhu. You know, if you're going to do an Apocalypse World hack of it, make it substantially different enough, I think. Agreed. Uh, I mean, they use it for another favourite game of yours, Cult, right, Mm. Matt? It's the only version of it that I've played that I enjoyed. Yeah. So it's not only influenced people to come up with their own games like, you know, Monster Hearts and so on, but also it's fed into a number of, well, I'm saying a number of, at least one, like, fairly major property like Cult. So I think if I were washed up on my desert island, I'd like Apocalypse World and a big pad of paper just so I can leaf through it and consider it because that'd be a manual to sort of look at whilst I was kind of thinking about designing other games I think. Yeah I certainly agree with you though that I think some of the hacks have improved greatly upon Apocalypse World. I mean we touched on this when we did the Monster Hearts episode. The Monster Hearts With a lot of hacks, I think you see them building upon the original game. But with Monster Hearts, it really, I think, improved on Apocalypse World by cutting out about half of it and then really focusing on what made it work and putting a few bells and whistles on. It really demonstrated to me that what made Apocalypse World special was that core mechanic. And once you've got that in there with the levels of success, then yeah, it's just such a simple, elegant way of doing things that, yeah, I can see why it's taken over the industry. Yeah. And it was kind of an indie game that is actually quite traditional. You are the player, you play your character, you speak as your character, you act through your character. There's a GM, MC that deals with the world. It's a very traditional setup. Mm. And also the GM doesn't have to roll dice. Indeed. I'm I'm quite happy with that. It means I can't fuck up every (laughs) sort So we've had a look at books and games. About the big screen, films. So back round to Scott. Well, I spent quite a long time thinking about this because I really wanted to pick a horror film because, well, we're a horror podcast. And I mean, we, we even say in the intro that we talk about horror films. So it'd probably be a good idea to talk about a horror film. And <laughs> where I said that I hadn't necessarily read a lot of new horror novels until quite recently, I do tend to keep up an awful lot with horror films. And I've seen so many over the last 10 years that trying to narrow it down to one, or even just remember all the sodding films I've seen during that time, was nigh on impossible. But one did stand out to me when I was going through lists of best horror films of the last decade, one that had really impressed the hell out of me. There are other obvious choices, things we talked about on the podcast already, things like The Witch or The Babadook, but the one that I I wanted to pick here was one that we haven't discussed, which is Under the Shadow. Have either of you seen this? No. I know, I know I've, I remember you talking about it, but I yeah. can't remember anything about it. 
So this is a British horror film that came out in 2016. Well, I say it's a British horror film. The chap who made it, Babak Anvary, is Iranian-born, uh, but he's lived in the UK for most of his life. And the film is set in Iran. It's the tail end of the Iran-Iraq war. And the film shot entirely in Farsi. It's subtitled in English. And it's about a family in a tower block in Tehran. It's a mother who was a medical student and was unable to continue her studies because she was a political dissident and fell out with the revolutionary government there. Her husband, who's a doctor who has gone off and is involved in the war and is away for almost the entire runtime of the film, and their young daughter. And this is a time during the war when Iraq was targeting civilian populations in Iran. So it's almost like the Blitz. There were missile attacks on Tehran. And it's set during a time when the air raid sirens would go off and they'd have to run down. And the, a lot of it takes place in an air raid shelter underneath the building. And there's a memorable scene where a missile actually crashes through the roof of the building. And it doesn't go off. And it's just the terror of this unexploded missile just poking through the top of the building into someone's apartment. And all of this is tense and horrific enough. But what happens is the daughter makes friends with this rather traumatised young boy who gives her protection against the djinn. This sort of feeds into her imagination. The mother has to deal with the fact that her daughter now suddenly seems to believe that there is a supernatural presence in the apartment building. Then she starts to see evidence of it herself as well. The fact that it uses a djinn rather than, say, a ghost or anything like that is, I suppose, more colouring than anything else, but it still really works. It, it relies on a set of tropes or a set of images that we don't often see in horror films. And that, for me, made it really creepy. I don't scare often at horror films, and this, I mean, it didn't scare me, but at the end of it, I was feeling really quite unnerved. There's also sort of other little things in there. The fact that it is set in Iran after the 1979 revolution... You had this scene, for example, where just as some of the really bad supernatural stuff is beginning to happen and the mother and the daughter flee the apartment and run out into the street, get into the car, just try to get away from there. They're in such a hurry that the mother forgets to put on her headscarf and they're stopped by the police and she's arrested. And, you know, it's just like this additional layer of oppression and horror that she's having to deal with as a woman in Iran that just makes everything so much worse. And yeah, this is an incredibly potent film. I mean, I know you worship at the altar of Commode, Paul. Well, know. indeed. Um, <laughs> That's all right-thinking people do. And Mark Commode did pick this as his best film of 2016. Ah, okay. That must have been before I was watching his best of at Christmas each year. Yeah, I think you'd like this one. Yeah. Just as an aside, uh, Babak and Vary, who made this, you mentioned the film of Wounds earlier. Mm -hmm. That was his second film. There you go. <laughs> okay, how about you then, Matt? This is the one that I spent the longest staring at my computer thinking, what the hell have I watched that was in the last 10 years that I enjoyed? Again, just had that paralysis of thinking, I've seen a lot of films. 
but when the hell were they made and what films actually stuck with me and resonated the most? Because you've seen so many. But I keep thinking one of the little movie runs that we've done over the last year or so is trying to catch up on all the Marvel films, which I know are right at the top of Paul's list from memory. Yeah, they go in the trash. Yeah. yeah. They are mindless and forgettable, especially after watching Endgame, which, oh God. But anyway, it just goes onto that pile of, yeah, I've watched it, it was all right, but it, nothing really grabbed me. I had to go right back to the start of the decade, to 2010, to think of a film that really did grab me. And it was one that I went to go and see at the cinema and was really, really glad I did. And to say how few times I get to the cinema, yeah, I am once or twice every two years. I think I know what film you're going to pick, and it's why I didn't pick it myself. Oh, okay. Oh, I don't. What's this? Well, it started off originally, the concept for it was originally going to be a horror film based around the idea of dream stealing. Oh, no. Okay. No, no, it's, it's not. Oh, okay. Well, what did you think I was going to pick? Cabin in the Woods. Yeah, I thought about that. It's, it's okay, but yeah, it's nice and gimmicky, but it didn't really All right. hit me as you, one you, that I... You've raved about it before. Oh, so. yeah, I, I like yes. it, but it's not one that I would say, this is amazing. But no, it's Inception. When Nolan originally pitched it to his... I can't remember which of the producers or which of the film companies it was. He was saying he was going to do a horror film about dream stealing, so going into people's dreams and stealing aspects of them. But this was just after he'd finished doing um, Insomnia. That He thought, no, I need a bit more experience as a director. I need to get some more bigger films under my belt before I attempt something this big, because he had a really big project in mind. And it wasn't until after he'd done the likes of Dark Knight and so on that he finally was able to get the weight at Hollywood to say, this is what I want to do, give me $100 million to do it. And he got it. And he reworked it from, instead of being a horror film, turned it into a heist film. But one that's layered with nightmarish imagery that there isn't really that much that separates it from a horror film in certain instances. For those that haven't seen it, it's essentially a heist film, but nothing's going to get stolen. It's all about planting an idea into someone's mind, um, in fact, a business owner, to try and split up his business empire and sell it to a competitor who wants to effectively expand his own empire. But to plant an idea into someone's mind, it's very much like a skin graft that goes wrong. The vast majority of time, they realise it's not their own idea and it's rejected. But to coin the phrase inception, it's to place an idea that is their own. You set up the dominoes in such a way that they knock them over and come up with the idea themselves. So it becomes almost like a con game to try and get them to get this idea. And it involves, in the universe that they've built, it's technology, I believe, that was pioneered by the CIA or military for doing testing in artificial realms, in dreams, but then got leaked and stolen on the black market. And there's become this uh, lucrative corporate espionage industry based on going into people's dreams and then stealing information for rival companies and so on and so forth. You got the basic layout. Bookstore, cafe, almost everything else is here too. Who are the people? Projections of my subconscious. Yours? Yes. Remember, you are the dreamer. You build this world. I am the subject. My mind populates it. You can literally talk to my subconscious. That's one of the ways we extract information from the subject. How else do you do it? By creating something secure like a like a bank vault or a jail, the mind automatically fills it with information it's trying to protect. Understand? Then you break in and steal it. But there's layers within dreams. Time slows down as you go further and deeper into dream. It's very cultish in some aspects of it because there's a large dream world in cult, particularly as you get closer towards oblivion and limbo. Three layers down, time almost stops and you can lose yourself and not realise what's reality and what's dream anymore. And it has one hell of an ending, which has been a talking point online for a long, long time yeah. because mm. of its ambiguity. 
and it floored me with an amazing soundtrack, a wonderful plot, just an ingenious premise and kind of MacGuffin, and that ending, really. There are a few other films that have explored similar things. Have you seen... There, there was a Japanese animated film no. from earlier called Paprika. <laughs> you, you lost me when you said <coughs> Japanese <Okay>. anime. <laughs> no, it's a really good one called Paprika, and it's a very similar idea, but it's a therapist who basically treats people by going into their dreams. It uses a lot of the same tropes. I think if you like Inception, you'll like that. And there's another one, and the name's bugging me. It's Dream Something. Uh, it was made in the 1980s, and it stars Dennis Quaid. When I remember it, I'll link to it from the show notes. But it's a you know, similar sort of idea of going into people's dreams and it being used as therapy, and then this being misused by, in this case, uh, the military, as they're using it basically to assassinate people in their dreams. Oh, okay. No, I don't remember that one. There was, thinking of a, an interview that Nolan gave, Christopher Nolan, director, that he listed some of his inspirations for the film. And it can, again, resonates with me that a lot of the films he listed are also films that would be towards that, in that cabin in the woods kind of bracket of really liked but not quite brilliant films for me. Dark City, 13th mm. Floor, The Matrix. And he also quoted Memento, but nah, everyone's not everyone's perfect. <laughs> That's one of his, right? Yes. Yeah, I'm not a particular fan of Memento. Right. Oh, okay. I really liked it. It just seems strange to quote your own film as a... <laughs> An inspiration. Inspiration. Yeah. yeah. Uh, though he didn't write that one, did he? It was his brother Jonathan, I think, who wrote oh, it. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Fair enough then. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the other thing that stands out with that film was it was a summer blockbuster that actually had a brain. It wasn't just like big explosions and well, not just that, craziness. But a, a summer blockbuster that wasn't an adaptation of a comic or a sequel or a reboot. Yeah, it was a completely original thing. Yeah, that's well, great. Mostly, yes. Well, in terms of that it's not based on a real property. Yeah, being facetious. Well, what's your choice then, Paul? Well, again, so many great films. I still haven't really decided. And even as Matt was talking, another one occurred to me, but it was actually from 2009. So Antichrist doesn't quite cut it. Although lots of things get cut in that film, from my understanding. Yeah, they do. <laughs> but yeah, by the by. I'm going to mention a few and then say which one I picked. I think Get Out is an outstanding film. And The Witch, we've already talked about. Bavarian Sound Studio uh, is is great. Yes, uh, I nearly picked that one myself. Yeah, it feels a bit one-dimensional. It's not... I don't think it's like I could buy into it and say it's my favourite film of the 2010s. I'm in two minds whether to pick Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. It only came out like a couple of months ago. And I've only seen it once, but I was totally blown away with it. And if you like that, then I strongly recommend You Were Never Really Here, which was basically, you can almost see as a dry run for Joker, which is absolutely fantastic. That was the Lynn Ramsey film, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you watched it now, Scott? No, I haven't. Right. It's, it's on my list. I did watch about the first 10 minutes of it on Netflix, but got distracted by something shiny. Yeah, he's kind oh, of dis disaffected hitman who has his kind of soul relationship is with his mother, Exactly the same thing in, well, he's not a hitman in Joker, but, you know, he's a disaffected person with a relationship with his mother in Joker. But I think, I kind of feel bad because this is a little bit like my book. It's not a horror movie and it's about a musician again. But the one film that I've watched and re-watched several times and just enjoy every time, and I think a mark of a good film for me is if it's on, and I, you know, I'm flicking through the channels and it's on, you know, I wouldn't be able to turn it off. And that's Whiplash about a young drummer who, again, it's kind of a coming of age story. As I said, I really like coming of age stories. Last night I watched Booksmart, um, which was another great movie. It came out 2019, which 
I'm just going to throw Booksmart in as, a, as another competitor, which is a, a kind of a, another coming of age movie. If you imagine like American Pie or uh, Super Bad, but done with girls instead of guys, you've kind of most of the way onto Booksmart. Okay. It's not as it's done for modern sensibilities, so it's it's a bit less crude and considered a bit more serious, perhaps you could say, which kind of reflects the modern day. I think the only thing I'd heard about it previously was it was a massive box office bomb. That's was the, it? Yeah, that's the only context I've heard books about. That's interesting. Yeah. Right. There doesn't deserve to be. So, yeah, going back to Whiplash, again, it's a, a totally driven guy. He wants to be the best drummer, and he goes to the a New York Conservatoire, the Schaefer Conservatory, and is taught by J.K. Simmons, who I knew from Juno, who is a totally obsessive individual who teaches the kind of jazz drumming the well the jazz band in the school and he is totally focused on being the best and he says uh, you know there's the two worst words in the english language are good job <laughs> uh, that, that it's got to be perfection or not at all why do you suppose i just hurled a chair at your head neiman i i don't know sure you do the tempo? Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. Start counting. Five, six, seven. In four, five. damn it! Look at me! One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Now, was I rushing or was I dragging? Uh-huh. Count again. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Rushing or dragging? Rushing. So you do know the difference! If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will fuck you like a pig. This film takes some, I think, unexpected twists. And then in the third act, really comes together really powerfully. And uh, yeah, just a great ending. And it's like, yes, that's uh, what they deserved, both of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's been on my list for some time as well, but I've just never got round to it. I think if it has anything to do with music, it never goes on my list. It's just yeah, never anything about a music film's interesting me. I hate musicals. I don't like. Oh whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa! It's not a musical. <laughs> no, no, but it's because <laughs> I'm not a fan of musicals. <laughs> no, it's, it's in that same vein though. It's when music. It's not. It's not. It's not. For, for me, it's it not. <laughs> I won't have that. I will not have that. You've got to draw a line somewhere. There are some films I like that some people think are musicals. Like the Wicker Man. But as I like them, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, like the Wicker Man, Scott. No, I do like a few musicals. I Okay, I'm up the back. I, I, I have to admit it, you know. But you wouldn't like them, Matt. They're fun anyway. People just enjoy themselves when they go to see musicals. You wouldn't that's like why, that. Yeah, that's why I can't yeah, stand them. That's not for and, you. And honestly, regardless of your opinions on musicals, I reckon that if you saw Cabaret, you'd love the fuck out of that. I've tried to watch it, and no. Well, you're wrong then, Matt. <laughs> By the way, I have remembered the film that I was trying to remember earlier. It's called Dreamscape, made in 1984. Oh. And yeah, like I say, I'll link to that from the show notes. I haven't seen it for a long time and it may have aged very badly, but I do remember it being one of my favourite sort of science fiction horror films of the 80s at the time. I would definitely and, go and track that down. And almost no one remembers it now. And that may be because it has aged horribly and looks really shit now, but at the time it was cool. So let's just have a quick recap. So starting off with books, Scott, you chose... Mongrels by Stephen Graham Jones. 
Wounds by Nathan Ballingrid. Words Without Music by Philip Glass. And Games of the Decade, Scott, you chose... Cthulhu Dark. The Princess Bride RPG. And Apocalypse World. And finally, our film choices were... Under the Shadow. Inception. And Whiplash. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we have people to say thank you to. A hell of a lot of people. Yeah. Well, let's start, though, by saying thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast, everyone who has backed us on Patreon. But yes, we have an influx of new Patreon backers because, well, we've just put out the Blasphemous Tome, issue five. And we have a lot of people to thank by name. But all right, our first thanks go out to David, and I hope I'm getting the surname pronunciated right. Gross. So thank you very much, David. And thanks to Brad. Thank you very much to Giuseppe Siriani. And thanks to David Schneider. Thank you to Paul Baldwin. Thank you very much to Dave Churchill. And thanks to, uh, hopefully getting the pronunciation right here again, Sean Souter. And thanks to Thomas Breedlove. And thank you very much to Gabe Jackal Dewhurst. And thank you to Andrew Holt. And thank you to Morgan Llewellyn. And once again, let's just say apologies if I get this wrong. Thank you very much to Oscar Agnesson. And thank you to Matthew Blackwell. Great name, by the way. And thank you to Martin Blake. Thank you very much to William David Miller. And thank you to Charles L. Taylor Jr. And thank you to Gustavo Altamirano. Aha, and a familiar name from our Discord server. Thank you to Anakid, who is a rare champion of the works of August Derleth. We have had many a spirited discussion on Discord about the relative merits of Derleth's writing. Thank you very much, Anakid. And thanks to Robert Ojamo. And thank you to Gary Matthews. Ah, is that G2 with the Smart Party? And thank you very much to N.R. Jensen-Jones. And thanks to Josiah Steckel. And thank you to Rondi Reeves. Thank you very much, Nathan Hughes. And thanks to Zachariah Kolomanis. I hope I got the pronunciation right there. And finally, thank you to Brendan Tang. So thank you to everybody who's backed us on Patreon. And just a reminder, if you do back us on Patreon, you get to hear this show unedited or almost unedited, depending (laughs) on who Matt has been rude about. (laughs) And you will also be down to get a PDF of the Blasphemous Tome issue 5.5 coming in the middle of the year. We'll put that out probably around the end of June. And that'll have all the material that we didn't manage to fit in the full Blasphemous Tome issue 5, plus a whole bunch of new stuff. I will be writing a new scenario for it, for example, so you'll have a new licensed Call of Cthulhu scenario there. So, yeah, lots of cool stuff there. And they get access to Baccaroni Discord channels? Yes, they do as well as priority for any playtests we might be running. And if you want to find out details about our Patreon or anything else about the show, you can find our main website at blasphemoustomes.com, where we have links to all our other social media presences. We can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, Reddit, and probably other places I've forgotten about. All right, well, until next time, that wraps up this week's show. So it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I guess I should say something bad about someone now. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck (laughs) them! Fuck them right in the ear. (laughs) 